It's 9 o'clock and time for We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning and welcome to We Are Just Christians. We're so glad that you've tuned into the show today. We really appreciate it. Hope you can stay with us for the next hour or so while we'll be on the air. We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show, as most of you who listen know, know, and I'll give you the numbers how to reach us here in just a moment. Having a few technical problems this morning. I think there's a computer down somewhere along the way. So uh, if you'll have to bear with us, if the sound quality isn't exactly what it ought to be, we'll get that straightened out here pretty soon. The station is working on that. But in the meantime, uh, my name is Mike Schmidt. I'm the preacher and one of the elders of the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. And with me, as usual, is Gary Jones. How are you doing, Gary? I'm doing good this morning, Mike. Good. We're, we're, as I mentioned, we're glad we can be with you. Now, as I said, this is a live call-in show, so if you'd like to reach us here in, uh, in Port St. Lucie, you can call us at 772-260. Oh, give me wrong thing. Right. 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590. That's the usual call, a number for WPSL. We'd be glad to take your call. Uh, we don't mind if you agree or disagree with us. We'll try to listen to what you have to say, point you to some scriptures in reference to whatever comment or question you, question you might have, and then we can have a conversation about that, and uh, we'll, we'll give you the last word on whatever subject comes up. If you'd like to text the show during the show, and even during the week, I started to give you that number a minute ago. You, we have two text numbers. One is mine. Mike's text number is 772 772- Two six zero six one two zero seven seven two two six zero six one two zero. A lot of people take advantage of that, or you can text Gary seven seven two two six zero six two two zero. Gary's number seven seven two two six zero six two two zero. So if you'd like to reach us, we'd be glad to have you and have you on the air today or by text. We'll try to respond to that. You can also reach us by email at justchristians at att.net, justchristians at att.net. This show is based on the idea that we think people should be just New Testament Christians. And that applies to people who are members of some other Christian denominations or whatever they might be, or those who are unbelievers. We think people should be just Christians. Our aspiration is not to be a good member of some human denomination, some human organization, or even some secular group uh, of a spiritual nature, if that's possible, but really just to be a Christian like they were in the first century. And we believe we can achieve that here in the 21st century by going back just to the New Testament to find out how what to believe and how to practice and the pattern for our lives, both as a church and as individuals, <clears throat> we believe that's found in the Scriptures. And so we're going to always point you that direction. You may not agree, and you may think we need more than that, but that's fine. That's, that's a point of discussion, and we'd be glad to have that discussion with you. We're not trying to exclude anyone from this conversation who isn't already a Christian. It's not just, perhaps, well, we hope it's not just insider talk. It may seem that way to some, but to hope it isn't altogether that way. And if you think it is, then that's your invitation to join the conversation and take us in a direction you think we should go. And we'll try to respond to that in a way that's appropriate according to the Bible. So anyway, that's the premise of the show. And that's where we are uh, and our presuppositions. And we mentioned that a few times here recently, Gary, our presuppositions. Uh, maybe we need to do a whole big show on that. Of course, that'd be a hard one because 
a lot of the times people, and I'll say this about me and you and, and everybody else in the audience, uh, many of our presuppositions we don't even know that we have per se. We have to really think about those, what they might be. Uh, the illustration I always use in my sermons is fish don't know that they're in water. You know, they until they're they out get, get out of water, then they can see a little bit better, but they don't realize they're in water. And uh, so our presuppositions that form our thoughts are that. Now, that, I don't think, that, although presuppositions are important, I don't think that hinders, or not, maybe it may hinder, I don't think it prevents us having a rational and useful discussion about many different issues, as long as we're willing to understand and accept those presuppositions for what they are, deal with them, and, and, defend, and I, I'm willing to defend ours uh, until you can show that we're incorrect about that, then hopefully we'll have the courage and honesty to change our minds about that, but but we can defend our presuppositions, our thought processes, rather than just assuming everybody thinks like we do. I don't think I don't believe that we think that here. Uh, well, Mike, we, even though that our conversations yeah. are coming from that standpoint. Well, we have a presupposition that we that I like to read a lot comes from the New Testament in John 12 and 48. He who receives me and he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Those are Jesus' words. That if that that's my presupposition right there. Yeah. That that Jesus' word and what's here in the New Testament is what's going to judge us in the last day. Now how we read, uh, we have to be careful. A plain and simple reading of text is 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 the best way. Right. Because it's very easy to read into the text something we want, and we have to be careful about that. Right. That's exactly right. Well, Gary, um, you know, we I wasn't here wasn't here last week, so we had a recorded show. But I got a quite a few things sitting here in this pile of papers in front of me that drew my interest over the last few weeks that I thought we could talk about today, and and maybe get some of our listeners to comment about or think about. Once again, we're going to approach these from a, our understanding of what the truth is in the scriptures. And uh, what we're going to say, the things we'll talk about, we're not trying to be mean when we say, well, here's an article about something that's not right. We're not trying to be mean about that. I know that any time people disagree today, it's viewed in the modern society as being mean or unhealthy. But that once again, our presupposition is, that there is a truth out there, there is truth, and we can find that truth by an open discussion or debate about the different issues. And truth is not a matter of what I feel about something or what I, you know, I started noticing this 40-some years ago, Gary kept pointing out, and people looked at me funny back then, because they would talk about, well, how do you feel about abortion? I said, well, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. It's more like, what do you think about abortion? I kept trying to say this. I didn't say it very well, perhaps, but, you know, my wife would smile because she knew this is what was going to happen. People talk about how they feel about things. And now it's become a real issue. Well, It, you, it is the issue of how you, you feel say, is, is everything, and that's well, our, simply not how you decide rational thoughts. Well, how do you think about it? The, the real point that I would make from John 12, 48 is not how I, what I think about it or what you think about it. It's what God thinks exactly. about it. Exactly. Now, we can go through the process of getting from what God says in the Bible to what my thinking is, which my thinking should conform to what the truth that is there. And of course, rational people can understand that there are legitimate places where two people can disagree or emphasize different things in their understanding of, of different issues. And so 
it's important that we think about that and understand the, how to resolve the differences, yep. not just by our own feelings about things, but... I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote something here. You're talking about, we were talking about scripture. We were talking about where we go for the answers to what we should do. And I want to quote another one that I believe that everybody out there listening ought to underline in their Bible, and that's Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 5. Um, basically, Paul says in verse 3, how that by revelation he made known, he being Christ, he made known to me the mystery, as I've written briefly already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it was not, has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. The Bible was given to us so that we may read it and understand it. And if somebody tells you something different, I believe they're speaking directly against what's written here. Right. And so, and, and I think that the key to that is understanding that, that the way that we come to understanding is not by all of us agree, agreeing with our feelings first, but is coming to some kind of understanding rationally and logically. And I believe that although it's disputed in many places these days, strangely enough, that, that uh, we can find truth it's in found in the propositions and statements that are made by humans and about the world. We can live by that truth. We may disagree about it, but that doesn't mean that all of us are correct. Just because we disagree, it means we have to keep searching for the truth. And that's what this show is about. So in any event, I'm not, we're not trying to be mean when we bring up these various issues, but it's a, to point out that these, this is where society and people and perhaps even us are deviating from what the Bible says we ought to believe and practice. And so it's an important thing that we, uh, that we look into this stuff and, take, and try to figure out what the truth of, of these various issues well, is. Well, Mike, one of the presuppositions here, even in the show, is that most of the people listening to us are believers in God and believe in the Scripture. And that's well, that's we, probably right. Yes, and that, uh, that's, that's really where we're coming from. If you believe in the scripture, then you have a desire to know what it says. And basically what we're saying is we're here to try to help to understand because we're seeing a lot out there that people in different denominations have omitted from the scripture. They have simply not paid attention to many of the verses. And that's one of the things that I commonly see, uh, particularly on Sunday morning television. You mean re religious? Uh, yeah, religious right. programming on Sunday morning television. Right. Uh, I'm I'm even now encountering it on YouTube. Believe it or not, there are a few on YouTube that are doing this, and I've run into things on YouTube that I said, you know, I find it really hard that someone who is basically dealing with this subject has not looked at some of the passages that are omitted in what they say. Yes, and we're we're still not we're not to where I'm wanting to go with this, but, but the point there is people will approach the scriptures. They'll come up with an idea that they like, and or a, a thought process or something that they like, and then they'll go back to the Bible and try to figure out how to make the Bible fit that, rather than taking taking the Bible as it is. We've talked on this show many times, Gary, about what's needed is just a, a plain and simple reading of the text of the scriptures. You don't approach the text with a presupposition about 
what it already has to mean based upon what you like, what you think things should be, and then go back and try to make that fit. This is, well, the, the term technically is isogesis. That's you go back to it. Ice meanings, meaning from in Greek, E-I-S. It's a pronoun that means take from. And so, uh, uh, oh, excuse me, it means into. Do, into, that's I what backwards. I was thinking. It's into. You're so reading you read into, into the text what you think and what you want it to be. Exegesis, which is the proper way of interpreting any text, whether it's the Bible or not, constitution, a book, the Bible, is to take out of the text what the author put in there. Whether you agree with it or not, take out what's in there and then deal with that. Well, Paul and so, warned, and that's the problem that people have. Right, the apostle Paul warned it in Second Timothy chapter four, I believe, in beginning verse three. He said, "For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will re- heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, because that's what they wanted. Right, that's what they wanted." Uh, it's just, yeah, that's what it means to have heap up teachers having itching ears. It's not that the teachers have itching ears, they, they, the people have itching ears. And so they want someone to scratch the ear right? Exactly. and so forth. Uh, and so, well, maybe I need to just flip the articles I was going to look at here this morning, flip the <laughs> other one, but, but, and, and that's the whole problem. It's, it's not hearing what the person is saying. It's hearing what you want, want them to say or the way hearing what you think they're saying rather than trying to figure it out. My wife and I have used this illustration before. I don't want to take up too much time with it, but we have this, we're totally opposite personalities. We maybe had some inkling at age, I was 21 when we met, she was 17, you know, some inkling about this, but not really. But we would, uh, even early in our marriage, I'd say, um, where do you want to eat? And she'd say, I don't care. That's the typical answer. So if I ever create a restaurant, it's going to have one of two names, Gary. One of them is because I don't be, care. I don't care. <laughs> and the other one's going to be someplace cheap. My kids would tease about that because wherever they say, well, you want to eat, I'll always see someplace cheap. That would be my, my preferred restaurant <laughs> at, to, even this afternoon. But in any event, um, I'd say, she'd say, I don't care. And then I would, we would end up having a, a, an argument. Not ar- argument sounds worse than it. it was. A disagreement about these things. The problem was that with my personality, when she said, I don't care. See, I care about everything, even caring. I care about not caring. And so I would interpret that based on my presuppositions and temperament to mean she really cares. She's just trying to be nice and let me have my way, which is not what I wanted. I wanted her to tell me what she actually thought. And so we would have this disagreement about that. When she said, but I finally came to understand when she said she doesn't care. I don't. Sh- I shouldn't read into that any more than what's there. She was meaning, I don't. Care. I don't care, which is a foreign concept to me, particularly. But that's that's her prerogative. So I was doing isogesis, as it were, on her on our on her thoughts. I was placing my overlay, my preferences on what she was saying, and therefore we can never. I can never really understand what she was saying properly. It's only when I laid that down and said, okay. I need to understand what you mean from what you're saying, from what you're thinking of. So when we read a text in the scripture or anywhere else, we have to look at what the author is intending to say in the general context and from that and, and the general context of it being in the Bible in the first place. And that's how you get to a proper understanding. That's a simple reading of the text. 
Now, we're going to have to come back to this subject. We've got two or three texts on this subject. But right now, uh, first preference is Jerry from Fort Pierce. So are you there, Jerry? Yes, thank you, Mike. Good morning, Gary. I was wondering if the, uh, the first Bible was uh, translated into Greek, I think. And uh, when Gutenberg on Benedict Printing Press uh, uh, was a Bible, the first book that was uh, printed, and uh, if you if you have time to get to it, I will want or wonder about the the Greek Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church. Are these are little branches of the Catholic of the of Catholicism? And but I, I'm more interested in uh, was the, the first Bible translated initially into Greek. And I'd like to listen off air. That'd be okay, Mike. That's fine, Jerry. Well, it, it's I appreciate you calling so much. Wow, another big subject. And we appreciate yes. Gary calling, uh, Jerry calling uh, this morning. The, the the thing about the Bible translations and so forth, uh, I wouldn't say that it'd be ac- it w- wouldn't be accurate to say that the Bible was first translated into Greek. It, it's more like this: that the um, the Bible was written the Old Testament. That part of the was even the New Testament calls it the Old Testament was written in mostly Hebrew. Okay, I'm basically all Hebrew. There's probably some parts of it, little bits and pieces in some other language. It was written in Hebrew. And then the New Testament, what we call the New Testament, uh, which records the life of Christ onward, was written in Greek, not just an or not just any old kind of Greek, but what is called Koine Greek or common Greek. And um, it that that was a special kind of Greek, uh, Gary. That was it wasn't classical Greek. My my father spoke German until he went to school, and we we talked to him about this. When we were older. My he didn't speak any any German while I was a child. He was only speaking English because he learned English when he went to school. That's what it was and language the rest of his life. But he, uh, we'd say, Dad, what? Do, we had watched these uh, shows like Combat, you know, remember Combat, right? And all these World War II shows. And what the German? What did he say? What did he say? And my dad would tell us what the German officer, or some soldier, said on the show, at least in some way. And he told us, I'm not speaking. He said he's speaking uh, book German. He he would call it college German on the show. He said we spoke hillbilly German. He would call it <laughs> meaning. He was he, the German that he knew was very ordinary, common language German, full of slang and what different, probably poor grammar and all that. Where the soldiers on the TV shows, these uneducated German soldiers, he'd say they're speaking college Greek, college German, <laughs> real uh, uh, academic type German. And well, we kind of well, now difference. if it was a German general, you might expect it, that. It's possible, yes, it's possible uh-huh. that that's true. But he would say he spoke, he could only translate hillbilly German, as it were. And so um, the Koine Greek that the New Testament's written in was a, was a mystery to scholars for a long time. And they thought it was, some people even called it, Gary, Holy Spirit Greek. Because it was Greek, but it was different and had different expressions and different vocabulary sometimes than, than Homer and the Iliad, right. the Odyssey, all those, classic, all those writings. classic writings, and so they would call it sometimes called it Holy Spirit Greek. Well, then they found out that it wasn't Holy Spirit Greek at all; it's the ordinary, common language of the Greek people. 
it was it's very plain ordinary Greek. Koine meaning common in Greek. The word ko- koine means common in Greek, and so it that tells you something. That tells you that the New Test- Testament was written in a language that God intended for the common person to be able to understand. He could have revealed it in any language he wanted to, even Holy Spirit Greek, I suppose, but he did it in common Greek for the common people. Now, that's just sliver across the top of this subject, but go ahead. But also he picked that language, I think, because it's no longer spoken today. It doesn't change. Right. It is is a language that does not change, cannot change, because it's, it's been frozen in time, and therefore we can know what the words mean. And we, we find out about this, uh, this language, through translating all these old texts and comparing the meanings, comparing them to the classical lexicons and how they're used. And you can do so much research on this language. So that's the language the New Testament was written in, was Koine Greek, the Old Testament written in Hebrew. Now, the other part of this is, though, the people of Palestine in Jesus' day spoke several different languages, perhaps, many of them did anyway. The common, one of the common languages in Palestine was Aramaic, yes. kind of, a, kind of an, a, a different kind of Hebrew and, and Syrian and so forth mixed together. Arama- and Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Jesus also quoted the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, which the Old Testament had been translated from Hebrew into Greek in between the two Testaments. There'd been, there was an Old Testament translation in like 200 A.D., or two, excuse me, 200 B.C., 180 Actually, I think it was a little further back than that. Was it? Yeah, I think so. Well, uh, okay, my memory's poor then. That, uh, but but, but it, I don't know the exact date, but I think it goes back almost to 300. Okay, so in, in, in between there you have this, this, um, this translation into Greek, and Jesus quoted oftentimes from that, sort of the apostles, the Septuagint, you'll often see it abbreviated, Septuagint means 70, so you have, or a form of 70, you have LXX, Roman numerals for 70, you'll see that sometimes in a translation. And, and they, in the New Testament times in Palestine, they also spoke Koine Greek, that was the common language that they could speak among the Romans, Hebrews, and Greeks, and so forth. They also spoke Latin, and that's the reference at the cross where it says Pilate had this inscription put up over Christ's head in Latin, Hebrew, and Greek, saying, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, that the, that the Jews yeah, objected those, the, to. Basically, those were the three major languages Anybody of that passing by on that road? Yes, they're the major languages. Passing by on the road when they saw Jesus crucified, they would all be able to read, this is the Jesus, Jesus who said he was king of the Jews. So that's why this mentioned there. And you see this, that's reflected uh, historically in the languages. But when God chose what to leave his text in, his words in, he chose Koine Greek in the New Testament, and he chose Hebrew in the Old Testament. And um, so, so we, have, we have a lot of the, and, and by the time, though, you get to the New Testament period of time, most, most Hebrews did not get uh, any education in Hebrew. Most Jews did not get any education in Hebrew. So to speak Hebrew fluently was kind of a mark of being an educated person. That's why in Acts 22, when Paul was being accosted by a Jewish mob at the temple, who was saying he had desecrated the temple, when the Roman soldier was taking him up into the fortress to protect him from the mob, Paul stopped the soldier, 
put out his hand and said, I need I want to speak. And he began to speak in Hebrew to this group of people. And it said when he began to speak, they became silent. And when they realized he was speaking in Hebrew, they became the more silent. They really a, a real hush came over the crowd because this man was speaking something that many of them didn't know how to speak very well. They might understand it. They might have been able to understand it, but they certainly couldn't speak the way Paul was speaking there. And so they immediately knew this man was different. He's educated and so forth. He's, he knows the law and so forth. So it was an interesting thing. You see their reaction to him speaking actual Hebrew. Now then, um, well, the, uh, I have a text here saying that the Hebrew uh, – the uh, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek in 250 B.C., so 250. I think you're, you're right, Gary, or somewhere in between what we were saying. I just couldn't remember the exact date. And so um, uh, there, there was some debate or some debate about what they were speaking. But had God wanted it to be Aramaic, it would have all been in Aramaic. Had he wanted it to all be in Hebrew, it would have all been in Hebrew. But the purpose of the New Testament gospel was not to be just a book to the Hebrews. It was a book for all men. And the universal language at that time was Greek. And so right. this, took the, this took the gospel all across the world because the people could read and write the Greek that was written. And then, and then when, it, um, when that language died out, Koine Greek, it preserved those words in the words that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, Jesus, that they had written it in. Right, and, and uh, that, that has a... John a, makes the point in the text, by the way, yeah. that Alexander the Great, you know, kind of Hellenized the world and made, he's the one that made this Greek the world language, Alexander the Great did. And that was about 300 years before Christ or so. And, and what that what that means to us today is basically there were a lot of copies made around that time, and one of the things that happens now is we find additional copies that we can compare Right. and look at, and we find they're surprisingly consistent. You know, most people think, well, you know, here, here's one copy over here, and it doesn't match that one over there. When you look at the actual differences in the copies, most of them are just almost minor errors in the copying. That yeah, we could go and talk about the textual right. differences. And, but for, that has helped that textual analysis of it in that it is that language in that. that yes. Yes, and that's the whole point. Well, there was something, and I John the John texted, and he alluded to this. I'll call it. I don't think he called this, but I'll call it this. At the time of, around the time of Christ, there was what historians call the Pax Romana. Pax is the Roman word for peace, or Latin word for peace, the peace of Rome. So, at the time of Christ, there were several factors that all came together to make this a good time for what happened to happen. Uh, the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4, says that uh, in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, so forth. And the fullness of times would be understood to be this, perhaps, this Pax Romana. And that is that Rome had conquered the world, paved the whole empire. We still have Roman roads today in that part of the world that were built around the time of Christ, where people could travel freely from country to country all across this great empire, stretching a long way across the known world and then branching out from there. And that made the transmission of the gospel from person to person when the disciples were persecuted and left Jerusalem made it easy, made it easy for Paul to travel both by ship and by roads because the Romans had created a situation where you could travel freely because they had created a peace 
in the whole that whole part right, of the world that, that, that peace, was stability to meant to a large degree. Right, that peace promoted trade, and that trade was what carried the gospel went with it. Right. In, in just about every where, where, every area. So everything was read, and then there was this. The Greeks had made this common language, the Greek new the Greek, so that the New Testament could be written in Greek. The Holy Spirit sent it in that language, so it could be taken. When it was when it be, they began to reproduce copies of these writings, they were able to take them, and different people could read them. Uh, different cultures and 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 people could read them because of the language that they were written in. Even if they personally didn't know it, they knew somebody that did know what that said, so they would read it to them. And so you had this military piece. You had the Roman roads. You had the um, you had the uh, language unification that was on at that time. And among many other things, this Pax Romana facilitated the spread of the gospel. So it was just the right time, as it were. And there was an expectation in the world that things were about to change. It seemed, you read some historians and they're saying there was this general expectation of change, especially in, in Palestine. And Jesus came into that environment. Well, when you look at the basically the book of Daniel, Daniel was uh, basically a political roadmap for Palestine or the area of Judea uh, involved in rule by different different nations, different empires. And basically, Daniel had come to the point where it was time to look for the Messiah coming or, or these changes that were going to take yeah, place. Yeah, there were, there were some of the, there was some, uh, obviously, some expectation of of this kind of thing that would go on. Now then, getting to well, before you go, let's let's go back to go back go to ahead. Gutenberg. Now, the importance of Gutenberg was the movable type, because while they were copying these things and making them available, because they were hand copied and so laboriously hand copied, they weren't available like books are for us today. Right. Movable type really took it another step, order of right. magnitude another step in getting it into the hands well, it, it of people. it made it much more expensive. Right. Much more, and much more, much more available. You could just print copy after copy. And, the, and that's the, the important... Masor, the Masoretic scribes copied these things laboriously, accurately. And I know that they thought when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the expectation was that we'd find just how bad errors were in the Hebrew text that we had. Wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. Because the mag- they would count every little letter on a on a scroll or on a page, and if it was one letter off, they wouldn't even try to find the mistake. They'd just tear it up and start over again. They were laboriously accurate. Mistakes always enter in, but that doesn't change the accuracy of the copying and the rate. Because people, and we have a text that says, "Well, you know, uh, it, it, the printing press stopped the mistakes from hand copying." Yes, perhaps, but to introduce printing mistakes, right? Which can even be more deadly because you, instead of having one bad copy, you've got now you've got a million bad copies of, of mistakes. And there, even in my poultry standards as a judge, there are, there are errors in in the standards that are printed out by these major organizations. You'll find errors that not just type, not just spelling mistakes, but where words are not re-edited from edition to edition as they should be or not corrected, uh, words left out to change the meaning of something, you'll find this from time to time. Yeah, and so there, so printing presses don't eliminate all errors. They just introduce a different kind of error. That's why people say, well, you need to proofread your stuff. Well, yeah, proofreading is good, but proofreading sometimes, if you do too much messing around with stuff, you really introduce, you can always introduce another error that you didn't intend. Well, right. What, what I've discovered with all these spell checkers is uh, – 
basically I've seen more errors in articles and magazines and they are things that I get uh, on on email or on the internet than I used to see in magazines because basically the spell checkers don't understand what word you're actually Some meaning. Spell checkers are dumb. Right. Spell checkers are dumb. And I was trying this morning, Gary, to type in the word Philippians into my computer, and it kept correcting it to Philippines. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> so the book of Philippians, it kept correcting it to Philippines. Well, I hate, I auto, finally, you know, I hate I have, autocorrect. That, yes, and, and, but it's helpful about a lot of things, and it at least underlines words that could be a problem. But, but I'm just saying there's no way to get around this. This is, not, this is not a reason to stop believing the Bible because there was a textual error here or there. Because that doesn't affect the gist of what we're saying. And in the people that study this will tell you it doesn't really affect it. People have to have, a re- once again, presuppositions. They don't want it to be accurate. They don't want it to tell them what to do. And so we had to find a reason why that can't be right, right. Because somebody misspelled a word sometime in the 1500s. Now, we, now, we can, now men can marry men because somebody misspelled a word in the 1500s. This is how ridiculous we are about these things. But Gutenberg's press made things much more inexpensive, and it did eliminate a lot of the problems with, with, with uh, copywriting or copying that were perhaps changed into printing problems. But in any event, this all happened in February of 1468. So what is that, 540, 550 years ago? Yeah. We have a printing press, and so you've got this... Um, he made movable type, as you say. And I believe that John is correct. I mean, uh, Jerry is correct. And I'm trying to find, make sure I can get the, for sure, get the documentation on this. Uh, where is it here? I think he, I'm trying to find here on this article I'm reading that the first thing he published or printed on the press was from the Bible. Okay. And um, let's, let's see. Um, there is no reason to doubt that the printing of certain books specifically mentioned in the record of the trial refers to the 42-line Bible that was Gutenberg's masterpiece was completed according to Gutenberg's major biographers in 1455 at the latest. And so, anyway, that's the first thing he printed. And you can find pictures of this. And then the second piece was a Psalter and some of other, and so, so forth and so on. You can read some articles about this. So, Gutenberg didn't invent the Bible, obviously. He wasn't a Bible person. He was one who wanted to print. And he knew that the book he could sell the most to pay off the buying this printing press, developing it, was the Bible. But that changed everything. And I still think it's true that today that the thing that, the book that's been the most printed in the entire history of the world, by far, is the Bible. Is the Bible, and it doesn't. They don't even put it on the lists anymore of bestsellers, because it was always the top bestseller for so long that people like the New York Times just took it off the list because there was no competition. Well, if it ever if it ever sold. goes off the list, it's going to be a sign of our times and where we're going. Well, that, it's that, off it's off the bestsellers list unless you are looking for it. Yeah. So forth. But but the interest in studying what's there is is Mike. What worries me when I see society today is like we we said at the very beginning of the show. It's these words that Jesus said are going to judge us in the last day are found there. Right. 
And if we're not concerned about that, and we're concerned about all these other things, and we're missing, we're we're really missing what God wants us to look at. I think. Right. You know, and and this this of course is a huge subject uh, to consider this the the development of printing and now not beyond movable type to the idea of of digital typesetting and digital books and so forth. Um, it's an interesting thing. Of course, I'm a book person. I got a big library. I do. I do. I have to admit, I do most of my reading these days on a screen. I was telling my grandson the other day, who's going to college this fall, that uh, I don't learn as well reading from a screen. I learn and retain much better reading from an actual book of some sort. I, and I don't think I'm alone in that. But I don't no, think I'm, God. I don't think God cares whether you're holding something in your hand that's a book or whether you're holding a digital screen in your hand. If are the question is, are you reading His Word or are you reading what some man says about His Word? Are you reading what you want to understand? You, and then, and then, and then between your ears, are you reading what you want to hear right. rather than what God wants to hear? So there's a long process there. And then we have all of these new kinds of translations. That's another whole issue. The the women's Bible, the gay Bible, the hiker's Bible. You know, you got all this kind of stuff. Reader's Digest puts all these out. And maybe Special, we better. And specialty Bibles is where the market is. I was reading an article about this, Gary, recently. But maybe we this ought to make some com- comments about that. Jesus said, it's my word, the word that I have spoken. And these specialty Bibles often make changes that I believe are not consistent with the original meanings. Certainly, uh, you know, there's one, I think, out there where they take all references, all male references out of it. Yes. They don't just they don't even keep the original language itself. Right. And and so this is always a question in translation. You know, do you want to, how literal do you want it? And uh, what is it supposed to represent? We could have a couple of shows on translations. And it's an important issue. But the problem is when people begin to write the translations that they want. I always recommend people ask me frequently. I'm looking for a Bible. I'd like to get a Bible. What kind should I get? Or I have opportunity to recommend Bibles to people. Uh, and I think we're we're off of the subject that um, Jerry called about, but it's probably related because you, you can get so – there's not much market just for a reproduction of the King James Bible per se or some of the older translations. So they have to spruce these things up. And so you're getting study Bibles. Well, that sounds nice, study Bibles. Except the study Bible contains human, a whole bunch of human doctrine stuck in there. Something like the Schofield Reference Bible. It's just filled from front to back with premillennialism because he was an ardent premillennialist. And that's why one reason why so many people believe that ridiculous doctrine. Well, my, my mother-in-law had one that was called the Ryrie Study Bible, the same thing. Yes, and it's just filled. You, you're, you end up reading the notes and interpreting the text from the notes rather than reading the text itself. And then maybe trying to go, I'm not against commentaries or other references, but you need to know what the text says and be able to try to evaluate it. But but people just follow along with whatever they have. And I tell people if they want to use a Catholic Bible, there's nothing wrong with the reams do a version that, that the Catholics use have used for centuries or in, in English, it, unless you don't read the text first. If you read the margin down at the bottom, the whole bottom is filled with with commentary from Catholic scholars, you'll never understand what the text is saying because you're not reading the text. You end up reading their commentary on the text. 
But if you want to get a Bible to, to read from, my recommendation, based on my vast, overwhelming knowledge, Gary, <laughs> of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic and all that, now, based on my experience and knowledge about some of these issues, take it for what it's worth, you need to get one of the major translations, literal translations. Throw away good news for modern man. Throw away the message. Throw away all those kind of books or put them over in a corner. You might pick them up every once in a while for little entertainment purposes. Those are not translations of the Bible. They don't, they, they'll tell you in the beginning they don't tend to be. They're paraphrases of someone's opinion. They're practically worthless as far as understanding the text. I know that may sound strong to some, but I, I think they tend to lead many more people astray, and they don't give them a, a knowledge of the text more so than they can help. Well, there, get, there, get a ma- oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Get well, there are four that I, that I generally That's use, going to. Go and the New King James is one, the American Standard, the New American Standard, and the English Standard versions are good translations. Right. I thought, I'm going to throw in the King James Version. Yeah. Yeah. But if you don't want too many these and thous, you're going to have to get away from the King James, go to the new King James, which is the version that I put up on our trans projection here at the building and use for everybody to see. I'm not saying that you have to, obviously you don't have to use that when you come here, but I put that up because it's, it's a, it sounds familiar to people and it's, it's just changing some of the, more archaic expressions to more modern ones without changing the text too much. But I, I prefer for accuracy the King James, New King James, or the 1901 American Standard Version, which is, you can get that digitally and hardback. That's a very literal translation, and I really like it, although it's got some archaic language in it. And I and a couple, re, I will go into reasons why I like it, but it uses the word Jehovah or Yahweh, as it were, instead of just the word Lord which I think is right. helpful to people on the Old Testament. And then you've got the New American Standard Version, developed first in the 1960s, but it's been updated. And there's obviously all these have flaws or reasons why people don't like them, but I think that's a pretty solid literal translation, the New American Standard Bible, NASB it's often called. My wife uses the NASB, and so we're a divided family. I'm just kidding. Right. But any, anyway, and then you have, you said the ESV. Yeah, the English, English Standard, Standard Version. Version. It's a newer translation. Right. Very. And then there's the simple English Version. But the ESV is, I think, from what I'm from using it, I think it's very good, very simple, and yet it's pretty, it's accurate. And I have two or three verses I'll look at in the New Testament to see how they translate them to kind of evaluate it. I think it's pretty good. Uh, you always have problems with each individual translation. But now these are all so available. I've got four or five right here on my computer. I've got three or three on my phone. I can have as many as I want on my phone or my computer. And it's okay to compare the two. I have in my library an old book, and it's got four translations of the Bible side by side in, in the book. Well, if we're on translation. Which is interesting. There are a few other tools that that might be good to have. Um, basically, uh, a good interlinear that takes you directly from the Greek into the English, and a Strong's uh, concordance. Those are good tools to have. Right. You if you get if you get a Bible that is keyed to the Strong's to Strong's, it'll have little little um, numbers by words as you go through right. there, and those are keyed to entries in that le- lexicon as a Greek dictionary. 
key to those words and tell you what word is being used and how it's used there and where it's used other places. Uh, also, Vine's Expository Dictionary of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. The Expository uh, Dictionary is where they take it. They amplify the definitions right. of words. One, and, one of the helpful things about that is it, it usually lists a lot of the places where that particular word is used in the same meaning that they're talking about. Right. Uh, and so that can those things can be helpful. Uh, Once again, as long as you're focused on the text itself right. those and how it compares to other texts instead of just under some preconceived philosophy like Calvinism or some other or premillennialism, you're focused on what the text is saying, then then those things are helpful to you over time. And you have to be willing to change your mind about things, which is sometimes hard for people to do how they grew up change your mind about things right but um if you if you get a catholic bible and you're a catholic and you read the commentaries at the bottom you will not you will not come away with an understanding of what the text is saying because they have to explain away passages like matthew 12 43 through 45 where jesus brothers are named as the children of mary they have to explain that away and they and they'll do that right there in the right there in the comments at the bottom They'll explain all that away, and you'll never come to understand that, yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters, that Mary and Joseph had other children. Mary had Jesus Christ, Jesus, and Joseph and Mary had other children because she could not, she was not a perpetual virgin, that kind of thing. You'll, you'll find this kind of shocking news to a lot of people. But the, someone texted in, Gary, about the Amplified Bible, and that's in, they're interesting. I, I have used them sporadically over the years. Um, I tend, I would tend to use something more like the, ver the book you mentioned, Vine's Expository Dictionary, right. more than I would an Amplified Bible. But Amplified Bible has a purpose. It gives you several translations, and it puts in a bunch of synonyms. Like it'll say, uh, forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. For the word forgive, it'll say, you know, all these other synonyms for that word. That's helpful up to a point. But once again, God didn't put in all the other words. You need to remember that. God didn't put in all the other words. He put in that word. Well, it's because But it can help you get an idea. If you know one word and you don't know another word, then it helps you. Well, it's like what we said at the beginning, and we've said on other shows. To actually get the meaning of, of many passages, you have to study other passages and make comparison to them. Because one may limit the other or expand upon the meaning of the other. And, you know, I'm, one of my favorite quotes is when Jesus is being tempted by Satan. Satan says, it's written, you know, throw yourself off here and, and basically uh, the angels will catch you. And Jesus says, uh, basically, I think Jesus admits technically, yes, that's what's written, but it's written again, you shall not tempt the Lord right. your God. Right. It, basically, he's using other passages, another passage to limit, uh, in a sense, the 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 meaning of that first passage. Uh, and that happens everywhere. It, that's not just in that one instance. That's just an example of what goes on. And we have to learn that as we as we go on. They they reinforce other passages and they limit other passages when we do the comparisons. Right. And, and that's how we have that's how we have to understand what Jesus is saying. When he says, My word that I spoke will judge you in the last day, he's talking about the meaning of it. We have to understand what those words are. And, and, you know, there's I, I, I'm looking at this chart I have on my computer about uh, 
different kind of translations. You all the way from a literal translation to what's called dynamic equivalence in translation. Okay, that, so that makes give, me nervous. I, when well, I let me give you an illustration. So here's the the Greek. It quotes the Greek in the, John twenty seventeen, and um, the the normal in the middle of this is Jesus said to her, that's to Mary, do not hold on to me. Do not hold on. Well, you go back to the literal translation. Here was the literal order. Of, if you just take the Greek words as best you can, put them in order, even though some aren't going to be, in this, you know, uh, aren't all the words aren't always there. But you put them. In, it says he said to her, Jesus, not me, you touch or cling to. Well, now that makes sense, except that we still have to, in our mind, interpret what does that mean. But not me, you touch or cling to. And then the words about Jesus are all out of order. Then you got the middle of the literal versus the dynamic equivalence of Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me. And then you got the dynamic equivalent. Jesus said to her, you can't touch this (laughs) from (laughs) MC Hammer. You know, that's about what it boils down to. Trying to make it into more of a modern slang, uh, very, you know, whatever it might be. And there's a difference between corne, common Greek, and slang in the sense that uh, slang changes so constantly it can never be understood. And then, but then you have a, a chart, another chart I'm looking at here that I've taught taught about before. <clears throat> you have this whole. Um, hang on, Gary. Let me. I'm trying to get something where I can look at it here. Well, I'll just make a comment about right. these these different languages. When you start looking at the interlinear in particular, you'll see the Greek is like uh, is not like English in that we often put the adjectives or the modifiers before the nouns and they put them after, they yeah. put them afterwards put, in other they words they put verbs at the end of sentences right we we would say the black cat when in greek they would say the cat black right and, and so and they won't even have the word the there a lot you're right or they might or might not have the the word so, there the, the so article. you they have a i have a uh, chart here and you can dispute some of this but it has all these bible translations on it from word for word or literal, and then you have thought for thought translations where people try to take a thought. Like if I wrote down somebody kicked the bucket, well, you and I would know that meant died, but not if you're from a Spanish culture. That saying doesn't mean anything, so you right. have to have a thought for thought. And then there's the paraphrase. So you go all the way from the interlinear, which you just mentioned, where the, the Greek text is put out, is put on a, one line. Right below that, as much as possible, they put the English words below those Greek words. Right. And it, they're all out of order in the way we would say them. But it, it puts the uh, New American Standard, the ESV, the King James, and the New King James right over there in the word-for-word side. Okay, And I would put the ASV also there. Now then, thought-for-thought thought would be something like the New Revised Standard, um, the um, New International Version, is kind of in the middle of that. Uh, the New English. And I don't really probably, like the New International Version, although it's very possible. The New English is probably falls pretty uh, close to that. New English Version. I don't only I don't see that one on here. That they, one they came out around on nine, this chart. That yeah, I that see. one came out around 1966 or 67. Let me I think. see if I can find it. I don't see it on this chart. It doesn't mean it's not good. I just then you get over to the paraphrases, and you have the New Living Translation the Living Bible, and all the way over the other end, you have the message, which is like the most paraphrased version that there is, and I, I just think they need to all be thrown in the trash. 
I'm sorry to be so indecisive about that and generic. <laughs> I think I'll need to be thrown in the trash. And yet there are churches in this area that promote and use the message. And I, yes. we could do a whole show on uh, on that version as how inaccurate you're not going to learn the text of the New Testament from the message. Uh, you're right. just not going to learn the words of Jesus Christ or the apostles from that book. So, but now it's a paraphrase. So they got this whole range of things. Now, stay away from the paraphrases. Right. You what? What I now my thinking, Gary, being being just a dinosaur, is I want to know the words that the Holy Spirit left. Like it or not, that's what I would like to know. I want to know both old and new. What words were left? in what form, as close as I can to that, and I'm going to try to figure that out. Well, I think, I, I think God expects that of me. Well, I'm going that's to try to figure exactly, out what words he left. That's exactly why I quote John 12:48. Jesus says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. That's why I want to know exactly what Jesus said. Exactly, and and then I can then I have to do then I have to do another hard process of of trying to figure out, you know, what in the world these words mean. You know, my I always tease people about people put make these little um, hangings and cross stitch th- verses, you know, and always cross stitching various different verses on things. And I went to a eighth grade graduation the other day. My granddaughter and they they had the students uh, put on their little bio their favorite Bible verse, you know, which was interesting. Nobody ever puts and Judas went out and hanged himself. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good verse. There's nothing wrong with that verse. It's just as good as any other verse in the Bible. But but nobody ever puts or as I uh, you know they put on some fancy thing from the Proverbs. They don't say though you grind a fool with a mortar and pestle, his foolishness will not depart from him. They don't they don't engrave that on something. So uh, a lot of parts of the Bible you know are unpleasant. We don't like what they say or they're hard to understand. But it's all God's word to be understood. I or, want to know what's or, being said. In vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines. Yeah, you don't see that up on somebody's wall, do you? Right. Although my granddaughter's favorite verse was. Uh, Take the beam out of your own eye, you hypocrites, from Matthew chapter 7, which I thought was interesting. You know, uh, no, no, Mike, fo- no we're, phonies. We're running low on time, and the, I think there was another part of that question was the, difference, oh, yes, we the never difference between that. the Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox. Yes. Uh, there, they are some differences, but there are some parallels. They're, they're not the same, but they are kind of the same. Let me say this before we move on real quick, okay. because John texted in that Bart Ehrman wrote a book, a, a book called Jesus Interrupted explains all this. And now, I, I, I don't know the book. I'm, I should know it. I'm embarrassed I don't. I can't recommend it one way or the other. But uh, one of our listeners thought that was a good book for you to, to look at for some of this stuff. So in any event, yes, there was another part of the question. Was the Greek Orthodox Church and the Roman Orthodox Church, are they uh, branches of the Catholic Church? Well, hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> I imagine if you ask a Roman Orthodox or a Greek Orthodox priest or whatever they call them, a clergyman, they would tell you, no, we're not. We're the original church. The word Catholic, Gary, as you probably well know, just means universal. That's all it means. So the Catholic Church is only named that because it proclaims to be the universal church, the church from Rome. 
It isn't that at all. I don't believe it is. I think history bears this out. The Roman Catholic Church was created by men over a period of many years and wasn't really complete in its uh, in any kind of recognizable form for the most part until the 600s A.D., long after the apostles had already predicted that men would fall away from the faith. Now then, from about 650 or 660 A.D. down to 1054, there was, Rome was dominant. The city of Rome was dominant in in this in the in the world politically and religiously. And then in 1054, there was a split. I think it was right around that time, the Great Schism, with the Greek Orthodox Church. And so the church at Constantinople claimed to be the original church of the apostles. And now I can go back and talk about the fact there's five great cities at the end of the New Testament era. Constantinople and Rome were two, the two that became the, the greatest, and these two then had two great churches come out of them, as it were. I don't believe either one of these is the New Testament church the church that I'm interested in, the church that we're promoting here on this show, trying to get back, we're trying to get back beyond all of that. And then the Russian Orthodox Church came along somewhat later. Orthodox meaning, as it were, true teaching, straight teaching. And so they are which is similar. Their, which is their claim. Claim, now. yes. It's they're a claim. similar. It's a claim that they're the true teachers. These churches are similar from, if you look at them from outside Christianity, but they're also different. For example, the Greek Orthodox Church doesn't use instrumental music. Well, all. that's one thing I thought we ought to point out is, yeah. is only one, minutes left one, one uses the, – the Roman Catholic Church uses instrumental music. The Greek Orthodox Church does not, and I would agree with the Greek Orthodox position on yeah, that. Yeah, you think they would know the meaning of the Greek word for solo and sing yeah, in right. the New Testament, wouldn't you? Uh, but in any event, uh, yes, there are differences in these two. So I, I would my advice to Jerry, although it's interesting to think about these things, and I love the questions uh, in this case, is to try to go pack past the Greek Orthodox Church, past the Roman Catholic Church. There was no pope in the New Testament, no bis no bishops and cardinals like they had them in the New Testament. No structure, no hierarchy, no mass, no worship of Mary, no saints and images, nothing in the New Testament like that. And yeah, that I think Pete, you should go past be, back yeah, Peter beyond was, that. Right. Back Peter was the not Testament the first time. pope, no. regardless of what the encyclopedia says. Right. And so, yes, there were lots of different factions and divisions in the New Testament, but we, that can't that doesn't determine my faith, the fact that people have always disagreed about these things. Let's go back and find out what the Bible says and work from there. Well, our time is gone today. Yep, it's we gone. appreciate so much uh, the calls we had and the texting, and we hope that you'll tune in to the show again next week. We want to invite you to our worship services at... 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie. We meet at 10, 10, 11, and 7.30 on Wednesday night for, uh, for, with, for you and all your family. Take a look at our website, wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. And if you go to our, web, our Facebook page, even without an account, which is Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. You can get a live stream of the services today and on Wednesday, which is Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. Thank you very much for listening, and may God bless you. WPSL Port St. Lucie is 10 o'clock.